the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, when the catapult fails, there's nothing left to do but launch your incendiaries with the dogapult of doom. Interstellar gamblers and a translunar laboratory churning life around in a can to produce biological butter. Plus our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's hard magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. And as you can tell, I still have the ongoing problem of sounding like I swallowed a broken light bulb and a bunch of razor blades. Anyway, we have a most excellent interview, this time with legendary Dean Ng. Dean has written a novel that's also a semi-memoir of his childhood. And being Dean Ng, it's also a rousing story with lots of adventure. Dean says he wrote the book for his grandkids. It's the story of young Charlie Harden who's out of school for the summer in Austin, Texas in 1944, just as World War II is transforming that city. The book is called It's Up to Charlie Harden. It's a young adult novel. It's not science fiction, but I encourage you to read it because it's very fun. It's also something that you can give to your teen or preteen and not worry that it's full of kinky and kind of yucky vampire sex. Shouldn't we be staking those suckers instead? or depressed young addicts shooting up on fairy dust and whining about how hypocritical adults are, as if this were a discovery never made by humankind before. No, Charlie Harden is a book in the red-blooded adventure mode, Tom Sawyer dealing with his hometown during World War II. So that's coming up, and we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. First, here's the news. The new free fiction and nonfiction is up on the Bain.com website February 15th. This time we have a really fun story from John Lambshead. Set in the world of the Citizen science fiction series, he is co-authoring with David Drake. The Citizen series continues in March with new entry into the Maelstrom. I was the editor on this one, and this story takes one of my favorite characters from the book, a very skilled intelligence operator, and places him in a den of thieves or in this case, a casino of thieves. It was a great film fatale and some good humor in the story, so check this out. Also up is a science article from Dr. Ted Roberts. This is a look at a possible biolab to be placed in Earth orbit, actually in translunar orbit, I believe. What we really know about the long-term effects of space travel is more than we used to, thanks to the International Space Station, but really not much, and not much outside of Earth orbit. And we don't need to merely study the topic, but to develop ways to counteract the dilatory effects. To do that, you need more than a counter on the ISS. You need a facility in space specifically devoted to such research. I saw Dr. Roberts make a presentation on this at the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop. Very cool get-together back in November. And now he's written an article for us. When the Lion Feeds by John Lambshead and a Translunar Lab Hurrah by Dr. Ted Roberts can both be found on the front page at Bain.com and then later in our free fiction and nonfiction anthologies at BainEbooks.com. Check them out. 
I want to welcome Dean Ng to the podcast. Hello, Dean. Yeah. Hi. How are you, Tony? Dean Ng is the author of over 20 books, including New York Times bestseller, The Ransom of Black Stealth One, and other thrillers, techno thrillers, science fiction, aerospace, and self-reliance nonfiction. Dean has led an active life. He's been a U.S. Air Force and Interceptor crew chief, a builder of dams in the Sierras, a race car builder and driver, aerospace research engineer, and uh, unfortunately also a university professor, I hear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well... Fortunately for some, yeah, I'm sure. Right for me, his latest book is a wonderful departure uh, from some of his other work. It's it's unusual, at least, um, a young adult novel. And it's called "It's Up to Charlie Harden." That is now out in hardcover and ebook form at booksellers everywhere. Uh, Dean, you state in your introduction that Charlie Harden's life doesn't bear the slightest resemblance to your own childhood. Yeah, is that true? Well, I do. <laughs> Actually, maybe not. Uh, it bears the same sort of resemblance that Tom Sawyer did to uh, the early life of Sam Clemens, alias Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. uh, as he said, his uh, fun in that novel was mainly made up of things that happened to him and two or three of his buddies, and I did that too. Um, my buddy Aaron and the in the book, was not really one guy. It's he was a a composite of two guys, and I think I have them mixed up fairly well. <laughs> well, the book is set in Austin, Texas, in 1941. Oh, it's 44. Oh, it's 44. I'm sorry. Right? Can you paint us a picture of uh, Austin at that time? It was just full of strangers, people that were fish out of water in that. They had come from all over the country, and the Army or the Air Corps or whatever were sending them to a school. Uh, Texas University was there. It was the state capital, so there were a lot of political situations. And most of the people that were new in Austin were young people, people in uniform, both male and female. And so it was kind of a free swing in time with a whole lot of people who were scarcely out of teenagers, you know, themselves. But um, they were loose and uh, willing to to make all kinds of, uh, of trouble. And they did, most of it harmless. But that was the way Austin was. And um, I was just a little too young to, to uh, get involved with the dating situation. All the Austin girls were finding it a, uh, a major um, opportunity to meet people with accents, people that they never seen or heard of before, and um, they had a lot of fun, too. Well, how old is Charlie in the book is about 12 or so, is that? Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and this is just, I mean, to be 12 at this time of incredible change... Um, it was. Um, still, there wasn't any. Um, there wasn't any connection with girls much. I was beginning to to wish that I could make some connection with girls, but <laughs> it hadn't happened yet. And it was a fairly simple time. It was a a. Um, it was an innocent time, and as you'll find if you read the book, there were 
moments where if I had an opportunity to uh, press a girl, I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> well, the... I would run from that opportunity. That, that... Running was the thing that I probably did best. I was not a big kid, in fact, since I skipped grades early in the um, process, I graduated at 16. So when I was 11 years old, I was in junior high school and um, got into a lot of um, chasing situations in which bigger kids chased me. In those days, when, when I was 11 and the other guys in my classes were 13, um, they could bully me a bit, but they'd have to catch me first. And I was sly, and um, so I was pretty quick. There was a situation in the book about, I called it Charlie's Highway. Charlie has ways of uh, finding his way through trees and in other dangerous places. And uh, once he gets used to it, it's just like a highway for him. But it's a lot more dangerous for some kid that that, uh, has never done it before and thinks he's going to catch Charlie. That's what happened with me many times. Yeah, the uh, one of the I guess bet noirs, um, not exactly an enemy. It's kind of a frenemy of Charlie, as Jackie Rett in the book. Yeah, um, he's he's sort of he's bigger and stronger than Charlie, but uh, he's not dumb, right? No, Charlie. No, uh, Jackie's not dumb at all. The the kid that was Jackie was very smart and tough and mean, and he was made that way by his grandmother. And people who think that grandmas are all sweet old ladies never met uh, Jackie's grandmother <laughs> because she taught him how to cuss. She, that is, she taught Jackie how to cuss. And Jackie learned very well. <laughs> it's interesting. So, in, in the book, you don't put it, you put in uh, place markers for Jackie's cussing. Why did you decide to do that? Well, I wanted you to have some sort of an idea which words Jackie was using, but I would uh, not want to use those words outright. Uh, as I say, it was a um, a more innocent time, so instead of calling somebody a really bad name, I would use it, I would call him a B word. And um, if you figured out what that B stood for, <laughs> then you were home free. Uh, one of the themes in the book is the kids trying to figure out what some of those words actually mean. <laughs> no doubt. And my grandkids, uh, who, of course, wanted this book to come out to begin with, are some of those kids trying to figure out what those words are. That's really the reason why I wrote the book. Some people have asked for a uh, for an autobiography, and I said, no, that's not going to happen. Not enough people care anyway. But... But I could write a, uh, a Tom Sawyer-type book about a lot of things that happened to me and my friends when I was so oh, 10, 12, 13 years old. So I did. Yeah, and it's, I mean, the book is really, it's, it's great to read as an adult, but it's also quite suitable for, uh, for your teenager, or, or in my case, um, you know, I gave it to, uh, I gave, since I'm the editor here, I gave a, yeah. a bunch of copies to uh, my daughter's uh, uh, sixth grade class and they have uh they've all been reading it and it's it it's something that stretches across generations you've by choosing to not put in the dirty words um i think you've you've made it accessible to a lot of people that and and not scary to a lot of adults so. 
want people to know that we knew those, what those words were. <laughs> we didn't much use them. The, yeah. the Jackies, he used them all right, but Jackie was not a sweetheart. There were a lot of things that, that didn't go into the book, but, but sort of um, ricocheted next to it, like the problem with eggs. Um, when I was just a toddler, I had a romance with eggs, we didn't have a refrigerator back then. I was two and three years old, and we had a, an ice box, literally. There would be a big chunk of ice in it, and that's where we'd keep the butter and the eggs and a few other things. And I learned to open that ice box door, and I'd get an egg and start moving around the house. We had a pair of dogs, pit bulls, actually, Dude and Buster. Dude and Buster were my slaves, <laughs> and uh, nobody could get anything good out of Dean Charles, that was me, starting to cry, or even tune up like I was going to cry. Those dogs wanted to find out who was doing this to Dean Charles and what they could do to, to stop it. You know, who were they going to eat? So with me running around with a, a, a raw egg, in my two-and-a-half-year-old fist, and those dogs pacing me, um, sooner or later I was going to break the egg. And, of course, they got to lick it away. <laughs> but meanwhile, nobody was going to touch me or slap me or anything because Dude and Buster would have words with them if they did. So that was my, my early infatuation with eggs. Yeah. Well, there's quite an egg story in the book. The boys, uh, the boys used them as weapons, right? Oh, we did that. Yes, sir. We did it. Um, the city library was a was a place where we used to to chase each other and um, waylay each other with week old Easter eggs. You know, after about a week, the eggs were not much use for anything else except as hand grenades. And that's how we used them. Yeah. Well, I, I love the scene in the principal's office when uh, <laughs> yeah. when they're confronted. Now, does that come out of life? Part of it did, yes. Uh, our principal was a somewhat larger man than the one that I, uh, that I reflected here. But he was, he was wise and he was cautious. He didn't, um, he didn't do some of the punishment that other teachers and uh, principals used to do. That was, that was in a day when kids got hammered, they got uh, spanked with sticks and so forth, but um, that didn't happen to us in this case. And there was a, um, a case about that time where the bigger boys, who were still at, well, if they were 13 or 14 and I was maybe 11 or 12, they began to learn that chasing me was not a very good idea. There were kids that were actually faster for 100 yards than I was, but there wasn't anybody that could climb a tree or go across a uh, protruding course of bricks on a three- or four-story building any better than I could. And finally, the big kids quit chasing me after one of them got taken away in, the, in a, uh, an ambulance. Well, he, he fell into something we call algerita. It's, it's a shrub 
Its real name is Agarita, but it's like holly. If you've fallen into a holly bush from three stories up, um, further... <laughs> uh, You're alive, but wish you weren't, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, this, this, was, this was on an afternoon when um, I heard the ambulance siren with great joy. <laughs> I passed the word along, and the word got out pretty well. So I didn't have any more trouble or much trouble with the big kids. If they couldn't grab me fair and square, uh, they knew better than to chase me. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, Charlie's best friend in the book, Aaron Fisher. He's kind of the opposite of Charlie in a lot of ways. but um... Yeah, he is, and that was two of my buddies who make up Aaron. And, um, yeah, he was more cautious. He was wiry. He was wise. He sort of was a was a rudder, steering me right some of the time. And he was a little older than I was. Both of them were. So um, <clears throat> I learned from their counsel. And sometimes I didn't learn. And they let me run wild some of the time. And some of the time they uh, they would just cut me loose and make me sink or swim on my own. Actually, I think the reason why I got away with no more broken bones than I did, and by the way, that was mainly uh, my my nose was broken three times before I was, um, oh, let's say, out of high school. That and um, a whole lot of other small wounds, but nothing very serious. Um, I got lucky and stayed lucky. And uh, Aaron, the two boys that were Aaron, were my models of, of deportment, of decorum, of knowing how to do things appropriately rather than going for broke, which is what I usually did. And Aaron is, uh, in, in the book, Aaron's Jewish as well, which, and Charlie doesn't really know what that means. It's pretty funny sometimes. Like, Aaron disappears on Friday nights. Where does he go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, actually, I knew about this, and um, one of these two buddies of mine is Jewish. And he, he's a lot more Jewish than he thinks, really. But um, that's, that's part of what he is, and I love him for it. I have a, a cousin that doesn't appear in the book, but she was like a sister. She lived in the same household with me most of the time. And um, she was a little younger than I was. And I, I abused her good humor a lot. I was just mean sometimes. But she uh, could get me back. For example, she knew our grandmother had a, a weakness that whatever the facts were, the first person that gets to grandmother... We called her mom. First person that gets to mom, mom believes every word. And once she, mom has heard that story, she doesn't care about any other stories. So when Carolyn hit me with a rock and then ran for it, I was right on her heels. But Carolyn, I, I wasn't uh, close enough on her heels because she got mom first and said, Mom, Mom, Dean Charles hit me with a rock. No. I didn't hit her with a rock. She hit me with a rock. However, I'm the one that got punished for that rock incident because once Carolyn had um, had told her story, Mom was in her corner. Well, that was 
one of the ways that smaller people could uh, could win through. Same thing with another a male, a kid that was a couple of years older than I was, but he was small. He was actually smaller than I was. And I made the mistake of trying to bully him a little bit. You know, there's somebody smaller than I was. And when I first met him, I thought I would um, play the big boy. He hit me about five times before I could get my hands up. And it, it occurred to me right away <laughs> that little guys, little guys can be um, sly and very, very quick. And maybe I should pay attention to what he was doing. And number one, be quick and sly. And number two, let him alone. And I did. Well, in the book we have, uh, it's it's really interesting, This the evocation of uh, this, the things that I sort of half remember, um, for instance, uh, collecting deposits on bottles. Um, oh, yeah. And such. A, uh, on a root beer bottle, a nickel on a milk bottle, and even a nickel on these little half-pipe uh, milk bottles. I don't know why, but those those were really special because... They didn't weigh anything, and uh, they still were were worth a nickel. Yeah. Well, uh, this is the way Charlie and Aaron finance some of their escapades before they find an even better source. Uh, yeah. And, uh, by the way, that that better source was real. Uh, we um, we just decided not to do it again. There was something I learned very early in life that was about something you do if you don't want to have to worry about getting caught at it, just don't go back there again. The idea that somebody always returns to the scene of the crime, mm. I learned, um, learn maybe not the right word, but that somehow got very deeply into me. If I did something, I wasn't going back there again. Maybe not ever. <laughs> and, and that worked out for me. Worked just fine. Well, what, uh, tell us about the legendary dog Dogapult. Is this uh, have any analog in reality, or was this uh, just something for the book? Because it was great. Well, the, the big problem with the dog pulp was the rubber bands. Is that, that uh, inner tube rubber in World War II was not worth a darn, and um, it was very flaccid stuff. But you could, if you had enough of it, uh, loop it together and use a small tree or some other kind of uh, made-up slingshot arrangement and uh, fire either a rock or, in some cases, a um, snowball. When Austin got snow, which was only about once every three or four years we'd get snow, but that or a gourd. And the gourd is about the size of a baseball. And they were hard, and you could, and we did, fire those things a block and a half. And when they hit that slate roof a block and a half away, oh, boy, that was a satisfying noise. As uh, old, Tur old man Turner might fi finds out in the book. Um, <laughs> yep. Yeah. And presumably old man Turner would uh, figure out, his name was not Turner, thank God, um, mm -hmm. as he would figure out, it was probably the, uh, the Ing kid in the book, the Harden kid, but Without knowing for sure, <laughs> what could he do about it? He wasn't going to shoot me with that bloody daisy air rifle. Um, I, 
I did some also some model rockets in those days that I did not discuss. Um, I was only getting gradually into that. Later on, I became a rocket designer at Aerojet General. But when I was 11, 12, 13, I was just getting into that. And that does not, I believe, does not, does not show up anywhere in the book. There's some airplane aero design in there with those balsa wood uh, model airplanes. Oh, shoot, I still do that. And with my granddaughters. One of my daughters, the one that uh, built model airplanes, is a prize-winning architect. And um, I give model airplanes, and I do mean model airplanes that fly, that you have to build them, not buy them ready-built, but build the model from a kit of some sort, and the better you build it, the better it flies. And I'm a firm believer in those things having been um, significant in my daughter becoming an architect. And my grandkids have also, with help from my from my daughters, um, have also become model airplane builders. <laughs> my my youngest granddaughter, to whom this book is uh, is dedicated, my youngest granddaughter Lena is uh, helping me build model airplanes now. Now she can't do as much as she would be able to when she's 10 or 11, the way her mother did. Her mother was losing model airplanes in the clear blue sky when she was 11 years old. And Lena may get there by the time she's 11, but meanwhile she's going to learn a lot about structures and and um, patience and chemistry and a hundred other things that you learn building model airplanes that other people don't. That's, that's a skill I believe... Um, American kids have have just lost. For one thing, having something already built, you can buy it. Some Chinese kid built it, maybe, and you buy it already built. Well, that's that's not going to help you. It might help the Chinese kid. But it's not going to help the kid here. So that's why I have my grandkids building model airplanes, and my daughters um, are very happy to help me do it. Yeah, I, I mean. Uh... We did. My dad and I also did model airplanes, and uh, but my favorite thing was to take the uh, the leftover pieces and make a, a freeform sculpture with the. Uh, <laughs> I used to call them scrapulas. Ah, that's <laughs> but, cute. That's a good idea. So uh, there's all kind of ways that can be helpful to uh, to make things yourself. I think. Uh, there's even something called there's um, there is a type of paper airplane that is um, it's not very large. And they are catapulted with rubber bands and with a book made of oh a a how to book and cardboard pieces for you to cut out to build the model airplanes. You can make model airplanes that really will fly a block and will make the best use of a um, of a park mm. on any afternoon that's not raining. So. It's cheap. They are models that you can build with glue and scissors and not much else. And you can learn things about um, about aerodynamics while you're at it. Yeah. So there are all kinds of, of model airplane uh, advantages that are not being uh, not being used very much anymore by Americans. Yeah. Well, there's a the the cover of it's up to Charlie Harden has a beautiful it's a wonderful cover by Dan Dos Santos. 
Los Santos did a wonderful job. Yeah. Um, and Charlie's holding a, a model plane in the, on the cover. One of, one of those little balsa gliders. We used them a lot. Of course, I still have a, um, oh, perhaps 50 model airplane kits. That Some of them are 60, 70 years old. And I can build a copy of the balsa wood model with um, leftover Japanese tissue and so forth and leave the original kit you know, undamaged and that way sort of relive those moments when I was 12 years old. I'm really doing that, um, we'll be doing it with Lena, the seven-year-old, late this afternoon. So the tradition continues. Well, we don't want to um, give the impression that there's not the the book is, progresses at its own rate, but it has a story to it. But I, I would like to know: Did you yourself foil a counterfeiting plot <laughs> back in Austin, Dean? No. What the the plot that I helped foil? Um, and by the way, there were a couple of FBI men that were called in on this because my dad was a juvenile officer and pulled the uh, the feds in to help this. There were some little pornographic comics that were being sold in school, in junior high school. And I spotted that this was being done and took some risks to find out exactly where those things were being stashed in a locker and uh, told my dad, who then told the Thebes and... And two of those FBI guys, big, jut-jawed, handsome guys, and my dad and I all went back to my junior high school and uh, rousted out the janitor and used a bolt, set of bolt cutters and found, sure enough, that that's, I was right. And what those guys didn't seem to realize was that if I had been caught, if the people who were doing this, because they were Tex-Mex kids and the one that was servicing that that drop of the little pornographic comics um, was, he was the size of a 10 or 12 year old, but apparently he was like 30 years old. And those guys would have stuck a knife in me if they had known that I could um, put them all in trouble. Yeah. Well, um, is it the case that, uh, that the Nazis actually did uh, release some, um, some, yes, counterfeiting mechanisms into the United States to try to destabilize the dollar? Yes, but I think what they did really was do the printing themselves and just had perhaps trunks and trunks full of $10 or $20 bills and such. Yeah, they tried that, and um, I don't know how much use it was. I would imagine it would make um, interesting research. But I do know that some of that was done, and it was not just American um, currency that was being falsified that way. The the Germans had a lot of clever ideas, and they used them against everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, one of the th I mean, one of the the main parts of the book is Charlie uh, gets involved with trying to foil this counterfeiting plot. Um, he comes up against some unsavory characters as a result. Yeah. Well, there were. There were some there were some terribly unsavory characters there, but you'll find them everywhere. Um, I did run across people like that now and then, but not very not very much. I stayed I stayed fairly clear of them most of the time, and my parents saw to it that I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
uh, they watched uh, over me relatively closely because they knew I was a, uh, a risk taker and, um, and did the best for me that they could. But you get the sense in the book that there's this, I mean, there's a freedom to childhood back then that just no longer exists at all with uh, all the fears uh, that, that contemporary parents seem to have for their children. And well, for example, when I went to, to uh, junior high school, I lived on one side of town and would walk right across the middle of town through the busiest uh, streets in town, and it was perhaps a mile not that, not any further than that, to a school and back every afternoon. So I was, I was loose to do all these things, to stop in, to, um, to mix with all the people downtown, to climb buildings, including uh, department stores and a couple of hotels, places that I would, um, would climb external or internal stairways and get myself chased by real adults. But I wasn't going to get caught. I knew better than that. <laughs> well, the scariest uh, and, and kind of the most archetypical part of the book for me as a reader was, um, it brought back a lot of memories from my boyhood also, was the way Charlie explored the storm culverts. Now, I lived in, I know that Austin probably has some pretty, pretty big ones. Um, this one was not that big. It was only like, four feet high at the, at the most because I had to bend, uh, bend over to uh, even when I was a smaller kid. That was very familiar with, uh, to me from the time I was seven or eight. And um, I had to bend over then. When I was 12, 13 years old, I really had to bend double. So they weren't that, that huge. Austin was not really that big a city at the time. Mm. There were things in Austin that that I hadn't been told about, but um, they were there, all right. For example, a cavern, um, a set of, of caves that were natural caverns here and there around the city. It was known, but it was kept at a very low key, lest people like me find out about it. <laughs> so I didn't know about it until, oh, I was, I guess, I may have been 14 when some kid fell off his, um, got off his bicycle. The ground collapsed away from him. He was not more than 20 feet from the edge of a uh, of a street, and he and his bicycle fell about 30 feet into this cavern. And it was said later on that if he hadn't hit a an outcropping, he would have fallen another 50 feet. And so the kid was hurt, but survived it all right. And that was the first time I realized when I talked to my dad about it, about the uh, the existence of all the caves around Austin. So they were there, all right. Well, what is uh, what are you working on these days? Are we going to see more of Charlie? Uh, do you want to continue this memoir, fictionalized memoir, um, into his teenage years, or or is this? Uh... I should. What I should do? Of course, there are the model rockets. They uh, they were the source of a lot of friction. And fun. There was uh, the kid that managed to get himself killed as uh, late in his teens. Um, was a terrible risk taker. He, this kid, was with me one day on top of a church. <laughs> church had a bell that wasn't in position. It was just mounted on top of the building. I suppose for 
outing someday, and it was a big brass or bronze thing. And this kid, while I was standing nearby, reached underneath and rang the clapper. It was the most shattering blast of sound I had ever heard in my life. It actually stunned him. He wet his pants. He just lay there quivering for about 10 or 15 seconds. It's, you know, it was his own fault. And he was very matter-of-fact about it later on. But this is the kind of uh, thoughtless hijinks that we would enter into. And uh, if you weren't lucky, and this kid wasn't, eventually it's going to kill you. And it did. Not this, but something else did. Well, you managed to escape um, and have a, and what appears to be a very wonderful childhood. Um, parents would not let me have a, a BB gun. They would not let me have a, a bicycle. So I was prevented from having things that all the other kids had. And, you know, I could make that argument, but they didn't care. All the other guys have got bicycles and BB guns. Yeah, well, I'm not going to get one. And they were right. <laughs> so I managed to survive that um, that era in my life and get to where I was the same size as everybody else, even if I was a bit younger in high school. Once I became a... Um, a football jock in Texas, that pretty well puts another string to your bow. Um, now girls pay attention to you. In Texas, I don't know about now, but then the two things that made girls um, interested in you, partly because their parents would have something to do with it, if your family had money or if you were on the football team, nothing else mattered. And I got to be on the football team. <laughs> well, you took the right, the option available. Yeah, and here I am. <laughs> <laughs> With grandchildren. Years later. Well, um, it's a wonderful uh, evocation, and it's, it's also just a great adventure story. The book is called It's Up to Charlie Harden by Dean Ng, and it's now out at booksellers everywhere. Dean, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Tony. My pleasure. And now here is the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. And I'm going to pull a former catch-up synopsis from a previous podcast so you don't have to listen to me croak anymore. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy the type of active who controls the force of gravity. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. They are known as the Grimnoir Knights. If the Grimnoir are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. 
Here's Bronson Pinchot with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Garrett moaned as the hole in his arm hissed and steamed. Visible bone was coated by rolling muscle and sprouting veins, then finally by bright pink skin. The healer's hands were glowing as he took them away. He paused to wipe his sweating brow on his shirt. Next. Browning is on the third floor, Lance said. Come on. That's the one with the punctured lung? The healer asked. Very well. Hold on there, Howard, Cornelius ordered. How much power do you have left? The healer was a surprisingly tubby man with bushy sideburns. Truth be told, not much, sir. After this, I'll need to rest for a few hours before I give you your daily checkup, especially after I help this other man. Then you will do no such thing, the richest man in the world commanded. Francis had known that this moment was coming. He could only keep up the momentum for so long before his grandfather's inherent stubbornness was sure to raise its ugly head. He looked around the room to see who was going to be witness to the coming argument. He had the surly Lance and the semi-conscious Dan, neither of which would be of much assistance, one hospital doctor, and then six of his grandfather's functionaries, hangers-on and bodyguards. It was standing room only. Grandfather, could we speak in private? He thought about it for a moment, then snapped his fingers. Everybody out. But I work here, the doctor said. But a guard grabbed him by the arm and yanked him effortlessly through the door. Lance helped Dan from the room. His friend was obviously disoriented. It was too bad, because he sure could have used Dan's influence right then. The last one out was the healer. He closed the door behind them, leaving Francis with his grandfather... The only remaining witness was a white skeleton that was bolted to the wall. Why are you here? Francis asked. I told you I was concerned for your safety. You are family. Francis shook his head. That's not what you said the last time we spoke. Cornelius lowered his gaze, studying the shine on his shoes. What would you have me do? Apologize? That's not my way. He laughed. An apology? You think an apology makes up for all the terrible things the Imperium has done? That you've helped them do so you could turn a coin? Don't you dare lecture me, boy! Cornelia shouted so loudly that it seemed as if the windows shook. It is a competitive world, and if I didn't do the job, then somebody else would have. I did what I had to do. I always make sure the family interest comes first. Your father understood this. Why can't you? Francis ripped the skeleton off the wall with his power and hurled it across the room. Cornelius cringed before the sudden fury. My father was a coward. He saw what the chairman was doing to people and he looked the other way. I saw children being butchered because they weren't up to snuff. I saw people, horrible, distorted people, broken and reformed by magic. They kept actives in cages like animals while they tortured them. A bottle came off the counter and shattered against the far wall. My father killed himself with opium once he knew I'd found the truth. He died rather than face it. He was a filthy coward. The door opened and his grandfather's guard stuck his head in. Is everything... Be gone, you oaf, Cornelius said. The door closed. Francis, the world is what it is. 
The best you can hope to do is read the current so that you don't end up dashed against the rocks. Francis did not have time for this. If you really consider me family, then you'll grant me this one thing. I need... He stopped, scowling. What's wrong with your nose? What? A thin trickle of blood was streaming from Cornelius's nostrils. He touched it, and his glove came away red. Why, why, I don't rightly. The trickle of blood turned into a torrent, rolled down his chest and splattered across the floor. He took a step, and Francis caught him as he fell, calling for the healer. Howard scrambled in, hurrying to his meal ticket side. The rest of Cornelius's entourage was right behind, staring over their masks. His grandfather began to convulse in his arms, splattering blood across them both. What's wrong with him? The healer's hands turned to molten gold, and he placed them against Cornelius's chest. He was recently cursed by a pale horse, but I'd seen no sign. What? That can't be. Just like Pershing. Why? Nobody knows. Howard said, let me concentrate. After several seconds of direct power, the shaking stopped and Cornelius began to breathe again, exhaling great rasping gusts that stank of corruption. The calculating part of his mind said that he should only feel disgust at watching this man die, but all Francis felt was alarm. Howard removed his hands and they returned to normal. I can't believe it, he said, shaking from the exertion. It's as if everything is going wrong at once. Give me a moment to regain my strength. His grandfather's hand closed around his sleeve. Francis, he heaved. Listen. Save your strength, grandfather, he cautioned. No. Curse him. If this is to be my deathbed, you must know. The truth... When he opened his eyes, Francis cringed at the sight of the blood tears flowing from them. I... I had Pershing cursed. What? He couldn't believe it. He'd known his grandfather was a crook, but he'd never... Why? Why would you do that? For you? To avenge your father? Forgive me? He spasmed as a terrible cough shook his ribs. Howard gritted his teeth and laid his hands back on Cornelius. Oh, please, I did it for you. Francis couldn't respond. The words would not come. The healer rocked back. Visible heat waves bent the air around his hands. I can't. It's like the pale horse is counteracting everything I do. The power had bought him another few seconds. Cornelius dragged Francis close. The pale horse. He made me do him a favor. Mod. Modified the chairman's ship. Nonsense design. Nothing. He used me. As a fool. I'm a fool. But I did it for you. He closed his red eyes, and his breath was coming in rapid, shallow gasps. Can't you do something? Francis shouted, turning to the crowd. Any of you? But there was no answer. Cornelius's eyes flashed open, and he spoke with force, making sure he would be heard by all. Francis Cornelius Stuyvesant, you are my heir.
you're the only one worth a bucket of warm piss in in the whole lot. Howard, Raymond, Kirk, all of you, as my witnesses, Francis is my sole heir. Take it all as an... His voice trailed off to a whisper and Francis had to press his ear against his bloody lips to hear his last word. Apology. The richest man in the world died in his arms. Francis took a moment to gently lower the heavy body to the ground before rising and stumbling over to the sink. He turned it on as hot as possible and washed his hands, then scrubbed his face until his skin was raw. He tore his shirt off and threw it on the floor. The scalding water felt good as it sent the blood down the drain. Pershing died because of me. Father killed himself because of me. Mother drank herself to death after father's death, also my fault. Grandfather died making a deal with the devil for me. The peace ray was fired at Mar Pacifica because it was my home. He had to steady himself on the sink. The UBF men were all watching him. None of them wanted to remove their masks now. The water dripped down his face and he watched it run in a stream from his nose. They'd always said he'd inherited his grandfather's nose. One of the retainers stepped forward and cleared his throat. Sir... I'm your grandfather's senior attorney. There will have to be an immediate... Shut up, Francis whispered. Sir, really, there will be an inquiry, and the board will... What would Black Jack Pershing do? Every loose item in the room rose a foot off the ground before dropping in a terrible clatter. I said, shut up, he screamed. They did. He pushed away from the sink and used a towel to dry his face. When he spoke again, his voice was as calm as he could make it. You heard the man. I'm in charge. Now, I want my airship ready to fly immediately with enough fuel for a transoceanic voyage. Which one of you is in charge of security? A brute raised his hand. What kind of weapons do you have aboard? Other than sidearms? A few Springfield rifles on a Thompson, he said hesitantly. Not good enough, Francis snapped. Go down to the local outfitters. I want trench guns, accurate rifles in heavy calibers, automatic rifles and machine guns, lots of machine guns, and ammo, piles of ammo, and explosives. Oh, explosives, sir? Dynamite or something better if they've got it, Francis snapped. Take my friend Heinrich. He'll know what to buy. If you're useless, leave now. If you're willing to go kick some Imperium butt, come with me. This is going to be dangerous, and most of us will probably die. But if you do, Grandfather was bound to bring an accountant. Which one of you is the accountant? A tall man raised his hand. Any volunteer who dies, make sure his family receives double. No, triple his salary every year for the rest of their lives. Can do the accountant promised. Francis scowled at the group. It would have to do. Let's go and take those stupid masks off. After telling his story, Heinrich had gone back to his stony morgue vigil. Faye watched him quietly. She had not liked the German at first, but she decided that that was just because he had shot her to death. 
He was nice, too, in his own way. Each of the Grimoire had his own burden. All of them had been beaten by the world, but rather than give in, they'd committed to making that world a better place. She really did fit in here, and she amended her promise accordingly. She would kill the chairman, not just for revenge, but because as long as he was around, the world was going to stay a bad place, and maybe even get worse. She was sick and tired of mean people hurting others, and she was going to put a stop to them. It felt good to put everything into black and white and to pick a side. It filled her with a sense of purpose. Heinrich shifted imperceptibly in his seat. He was listening to something. What? she asked, but Heinrich rose quickly, Luger in hand. Fay, travel away, right now. You do not need to see this. What? Oh, Heinrich, no. It can't be. Please, just go, Fay. Leave this to me. He approached the table, gun extended. She slid off the edge of the porcelain and prepared to travel, her heart heavy. She felt hot tears rushing involuntarily to her eyes. Delilah had always been so good and beautiful. A pale hand shot out from under the sheet, grabbed Heinrich's wrist, and Faye screamed. That was part of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, as read by Bronson Pincho. That's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Bain intern Amanda Holton and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a river of golf balls and wishing well coins, plus a dogapult launched bursting shell filled with kudos and gratitude to Dean Ng, author of new historical young adult novel, It's Up to Charlie Harden. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy storytelling. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>